0: Ya'atay, hello. Welcome to Real Native Roots Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots, hosted by yours truly, Vicki Old Oldman. I am a lover of stories, a connector, and a holder of wisdom keepers. Each month, we will be connecting with our Native relatives and exploring what medicine our guests share and offer to us. Please join me on this uncharted journey to learn, connect, and reflect. Aya Hat, thank you. Good day, listeners. How are you? Welcome back. I'm excited about today, but I'm going to check in with you like I always do and let you know some of my learnings. Today's learning for me anyway is just that, learning. This podcast journey has just been such a delight. I did it because I wanted to capture stories. As I've been doing this, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm learning so much. I'm learning about myself. Of course, I'm learning so much wisdom from our guests that come on. I'm learning new vocabulary as well. I'm like, how do I say that? <laughs> I'm one of those individuals. I am. Where I'll go on Google, like, how do you pronounce whatever the word is? And then I have to practice it and practice it. I'm horrible with the English language and it's, it's one that I have not cracked. I hope that you are spending time at the end of the day reflecting on what did I learn today and how are you applying that learning? I, as you know, have a story to read. This story I found, actually, I'll be honest, it was Spirit that found the story for me. Usually I really look for a story that might relate to my guests. In this case, I just asked Spirit. After I read it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so in line with my guest who's coming on. I'm going to read it. And so I just ask that you bear with me as I read this story to you all. I tell you guys, you're going to know this author because I've been reading from him a lot. I really wish I met him. He's no longer on this plane. He's left us, but he left us his books, which I completely appreciate. So the name of this story is called Which Hat to Wear? Life certainly was simply as a stereotype. It gets harder and harder to be an Indian in this country. Back in the good old days, your average Aboriginal could at least depend on existing stereotypes to amble through the rough spots. Nowadays, with Indians going prime time on a regular basis, you really have to work to be recognized as a bona fide Indian. In those days, Prior to the media explosion of the 80s, the general perception of Canada's Indians was that of fluttery welfare-dependent wards of the state with a charming romantic history. In tense social situations, all you really needed to do was grunt a little, remain stone-faced, and talk about your grandfather. Either that, or you found it necessary to affect the militant perception of the Indian. To fit that particular dimension, you needed to sport long braids, turquoise beaded vests, moccasins, and various Aboriginal accoutrement. Your vocabulary needed to be spiced up with at least four derivation of the word "hunky." In quotes, there are at least a dozen, but four is a strong traditional number, and peppered with reference of Che Guevara, revolution broken treaties, and the sanctity of land. And of course, your grandfather. Then there was the Hollywood image. Those of us who wandered into this scenario soon found ourselves considered, in quotes, hot invitations to parties hosted by the liberal-minded. To be a Hollywood Indian, you absolutely needed to look the part. Long braids, cowboy boots, jeans, beaded paraphernalia, and jewelry. It also is essential that you discuss the Sundance, sweat lodges, vision quests, eagle feathers, the meaning of the circle, and, of course, your grandfather. Fitting into one or all of these stereotypes made it relatively easy to wander around the country and be accepted as genuine Aboriginal. Then, enlightenment happened. For one or another... The public began to latch on to the idea of Indians as diverse cultures and our cover was blown forever. Suddenly there were native politicians on television, artists and playwrights being interviewed on Side, native lawyers pressing cases and causes in the Supreme Court, native teachers, journalists, social workers, doctors, and policemen. With the cultural light switch thrown open, People everywhere discovered Indians. They discovered that there were more than just the Apache, Cherokee, Sioux, Cheyenne. Indians were everywhere. They discovered the dog rid blackhead, solto, Oneida, and Ojibwe. When they stumbled upon them, they found warm, humble, humorous, kind, politically astute, and culturally motivated nations within their own nation. They discovered there was a history of their country that was never revealed in the history books or school texts. They discovered nations of Canadians who had added much to the fabric and fiber of their homeland and had been credited with none of it. They discovered a missing part of themselves. Mm. And that's what makes it so difficult to be an Indian these days. When there was just us concerned about us, you only had to identify yourself as either a treaty Indian or a non-status one. The MITs would gain constitution recognitions in the 80s, as with the Inuit and the Bill C-31 people. And then came the monarchies of urban Indian, traditional Indian, and the warrior. Suddenly, you needed to know your heritage. Have an encyclopedic knowledge of the land claims process. Speak your language. Be able to skin a mule. Recite Chief Seattle's address in its entirety. Discuss the prohibitive effects of a welfare mentality to the fostering of a culture and quote crucial constitutional passages pertaining to the flight of your people. Talking about your grandfather wasn't cutting it anymore. Sure, you still could score points at parties with references to sweetgrass, hand drums, and powwows. but more and more, we Indians would find ourselves pressed to digress on residential school, the fur trade, the relative merits of party politics on Native organizations, fiscal restraint, the OST, and its effect on our tax status, and comparative analysis of the Mulroney and Trudeau cabinets. It started to seem like we were required to qualify as Aboriginal, all of which is fine. There's a certain element within our community that hungers for the security of relative anonymity. Because it used to be somewhat comforting to simply grunt, look quizzical, and wander away in stone-faced elegance to another corner of the room. Nowadays, they follow you. It becomes downright hip to be up on Indian issues, and it's requiring us as Aboriginal people to look more closely at who we are, where we came from, and where we want to go. Grandfather, I think, would be proud. Mm. Thank you, Richard. And like I said, when Spirit found this this morning, I was like, oh, this is too perfect for our guests. I hope you all enjoyed that. Let me introduce to you all who is with me. I'm so excited. Our guest, his name is Simon Moya Smith. I met him on a Saturday afternoon on August 13th, 2022 in a little cinema theater in Albuquerque. We were watching a movie called Little Big Man. I had never seen it. So I was there with a friend. He actually was excited about meeting Simon. I had no idea who Simon was. I was like, okay. At the end of the movie, Simon and another individual, three of them were facilitating conversation about the movie. They wanted to unpack it and talk about what references folks saw, felt about being Indigenous and what that means. I was like, who is this man? And I know a handful of men that facilitate quite well. And I was blown away and how well he was spitting out data just calling people on their reflections and thoughts. So at the end, I went down, I was like, I got to meet him. I got to meet this guy. Go down, meet him, tell him how amazing he was and how impressed I was. I remember in quotes, he said to me, you either going to love me or hate me. <laughs> that caught my attention. I was like, huh, I want to know more about that. What is that? What is that all about? So I went on my own little journey and started to follow him, research him, Hear and read his articles and videos. I'll tell you, Simon Moya Smith, if you don't know who he is, you will definitely know after this podcast connection. He is Oglala Lakota and Chicano. He is a writer, a journalist, and I would even say a storyteller in that way. If I had to hashtag him, if someone said hashtag Simon, I would say smart, funny, clever, witty, fearless, real, man on a mission, introvert, I think also an extrovert depending on the situation, Raw, and I would say a phenomenal Indigenous man. He has appeared on The Nation, NBC News, Insider, Lonely Planet. He's a frequent guest on NPR, CNN. He teaches Indigenous Studies and Media at the University of Colorado. And he's also right now finishing up a book called Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass, Native Food and White Fuckery. So be on the lookout for that. I want to introduce to you my friend. His name again is Simon Moyesmith. Simon, unmute. Say hello to our listeners.
1: Oh, hi. Yeah, the way you painted me, man, I it sounds like a saint, Jesus. I'm not, I, man. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I love to sin. Hell yeah, got some sinning to do.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad we're here. It finally happened. I caught my butterfly.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, no, here we are after uh, so long. Yeah, Jesus. That was August? God, yeah. that like the other day in Albuquerque. And yeah, no, that was a last minute invite. They didn't know I was living here. And then a lot of people don't know that I'm living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they're like, oh my God, you're in town. Come down. And I was like, sure. But I didn't know they wanted me to facilitate. When I showed up late, they almost didn't let me into the theater. The manager was like, where's this son of a bitch? I drove and you know, I knock on the door and and then, you know, it's a dark theater. So I'm stumbling, making a whole bunch of noise in the back because I couldn't see my fucking seat. And then they're like, OK, well, once it's done, we're going to have you talk. I'm like, about what? And they're like, just just talk. And I'm like, OK, you know, you just you you go with it and you ad lib it. And, but what I noticed was there's a, a fair amount of indigenous people, but a lot of white people, a lot of older white people, because this was a uh, Dustin Hoffman back in the 70s, early 70s. Yeah. And I remember that movie as a kid and it was the first film where you got to see a two-spirit person. People are like, what are two spirits? And you got to introduce them to the idea of how we didn't have just one gender, two genders, three genders. We had many, many, many genders. You know, you, you see them in the crowd and I was like, and I could see people, some of them were getting confused. You break it down. And I think that's where you get a lot of people. I was like, we say a reservation. Well, you tell them what a reservation is, the history of a reservation, that it was a prison camp. A lot of them were first established as prison camps. And then a lot of them were older. I noticed that there were some that were, you know, up there in age. So I was like, they remember the stories about Pearl Harbor. And you got to tell them that, yeah, it was the Bureau of Indian Affairs that was in charge of rounding up all of the Japanese and Japanese Americans and putting them into these concentration camps. And a lot of those camps were on reservations. The Navajo Nation, they put them over there on Poston, P-O-S-T-O-N. That is still one of my favorite articles by the writer. I can't remember the writer's name, but the headline was an internment camp within an internment camp. And so you just capture people with the facts because a lot of this stuff isn't out there. Oh, by the way, hi.
0: Hi, Simon. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you were able to pivot. You couldn't tell. looked like you had your notes. You were ready to go.
1: <laughs> no, I was just scribbling them in the back in the dark. Shit, the hell do I think?
0: <laughs> you will always have something to say. I know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the story I read to the listeners?
1: Oh, I think it's great. I mean, it's true. It's kind of like, you know, even today here in in Santa Fe, New Mexico, there's this massive fetish of indigenous people. When they see you, it's like this painting or this sculpture come to life, like this weird Pinocchio shit. And and then they want to touch you. And then when they get really drunk, they want to fuck you. And this is the weirdest energy that I've never experienced anywhere else. I mean, this is the epicenter of indigenous fetishized kind of eroticism. And so, when you walk in the door, you don't know what you're going to face. You're going to, you can face a racist Washington football team fan or Kansas City Chiefs fan, or you'll find somebody that wants to just like maul you with admiration as if they touch you and you're like a talisman or something. And they'll get some luck, or I don't know. It's fucking weird, man. This is a weird town. I've only been here a year and I'm still baffled.
0: Well, I'm glad it resonated with you because I feel like we have to do more and more and more to be present, to be fully in these spaces. And constantly, it's like, it's it's a lot of work being indigenous.
1: It is. And then you you have to be, and one th- you know, one of the stereotypes you don't get, we get every other stereotype, but we don't get any credit for being patient. The fact that we have to field the same questions all the time. And these are the questions our elders had to answer back in the 70s and the 60s. And then the people are still coming with the similar questions. You live in teepees. Why don't you have long hair? Why is your last name Moya Smith? Why isn't it, you know, runs with dog or some shit? That's what you deal with all the time. So it does take a level of patience on the part of indigenous people to not just say, just get the fuck away from me. You know, and you feel that sometimes. Just get the fuck away from me. But you you also understand that you have a responsibility to defeat these stereotypes by answering some of these questions because then you hope that they'll share it with other people and then your kids hopefully won't have to answer them
0: right so my mom loves you she (laughs) saw a couple of issues like we need more men like that like who are educated who say what they have to say
1: (laughs) oh i don't know i appreciate that just my mom is always a when i was gonna go on cnn or NPR, they don't allow cussing. And she and Miko don't, you know, watch out. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. She goes, let it out now. I'm like, fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then I'd go on the show.
0: Well, speaking of your mom, one of the reasons why I want to bring you on is I wanted the listeners to get to know a little bit about who you are and who molded you. I know that your mom is Chicano. Your dad is Mm Lakota. And that your mom, she is from L.A., but she took you to Denver because you were getting into mischief. I was, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your mom.
1: She's a badass. She's Chicana, and my dad left early on. He came and he went, you know. And I'm I'm not the only Indigenous man who has that narrative that we were raised by our mothers. And my mom, being Chicana, knew that uh, as having an Oglala Lakota son, she wanted to make sure that I knew that I was Indigenous south of the border and north of the white man's border. Right, Indigenous people in Mexico don't get enough credit. You know, people like to use the language of Native American and then First Nation. And then when they talk about indigenous people in Mexico, they just say Mexicans. That's the equivalent of people calling you and I American or calling indigenous people in Canada, Canadian. But no, she knows she's indigenous and she wanted to raise her indigenous boy to know that he's Oglala Lakota as well. So she got me enrolled. She introduced me to... The powwow trail. And she basically just stood up and said, Hey, I have an Oglala Lakota son. I need somebody to help me show him his ways. So she got me enrolled with my nation. She got me involved with powwows. So I was a grass dancer for a long time as a kid. I don't bend that way anymore. But she also made sure that I spoke up Columbus Day. She would tell me, you know, fuck Columbus. And let me tell you why. When I was a kid in elementary school, I used to get sent home every Columbus Day until I left elementary school because I was disruptive. And so that became a day where my mom would take me and go eat anything I wanted. She's like, that's, that's my boy. I raised my boy to let them know that Christopher Columbus was a murdering, genocidal maniac. And so I knew that as a kid. Yeah, she. the whole reason I do what I do is because she taught me how to, you know, fight back and, you know, be resistant. And it didn't always work in her favor because then I would say something to my mom and she'd be like, no, 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 no. You do that with periods. You do that with society. You don't do that here. And I'm like, oh, okay. Sorry. No. So, yeah. She's tough, man. She's still, she's, she's still a bad, she's a mama bear, but she's a mama bear that you don't want to cross. She taught me to defend people who can't defend themselves. And I'm not a big dude. You know, I, my, my Chicano jeans are strong. I, I walk in like Frodo Baggins <laughs> around my cousins from the res. They're all basketball players and six, three and here I come. And they're like, oh, here comes Simon, and little guy. But they also know that, you know, they're like, oh, don't fuck with him. He's got Bernadette, his mom. She'll kick our ass.
0: <laughs> I know that you have many fond memories of your mom. Many. Yeah. yeah. What would be like the funniest or just one that would make your heart melt? Like you will always have that memory. Like if that was a moment with mom.
1: You know, there was this one time when I was a kid. In East L.A., now they've gentrified the neighborhood, but in Echo Park, it was lowriders and cholos and cholas and, you know, our, you know, zoot suits and the oldies music. There was one time where this, this lady was like fronting on, you know, just trying to come at me and the inner chola came out on my mom. It comes out and I, I always look forward to seeing the inner Chola come out. Like, oh, you know, watching her being defensive, but it's not like a mom that's like, don't fight. No, she'll take her earrings off and she's ready to go. She's ready to throw down. So when I was a kid, yeah, I don't know why this lady was coming at me. I can't remember what it was, but my mom just, it, it was, it was almost like she stepped out of a lowrider. She was ready to throw down. She's always ready. It, even, even when I was up at Standing Rock and then when I was fighting the pipeline at line three, my mom had, and it was really cute, but it was also something that showed how much she loved what I do. She had a savings account. It was bail money that she saved to make sure that if I got arrested fighting pipelines or racism in any form, you know, mascots, she would have money to bail me out.
0: Truly a mama bear for sure.
1: She knew I I wasn't going to get arrested for anything stupid. She knew that if I was going to arrest, and I have gotten arrested. You know, but for fighting for the people, fighting for the land, fighting against mascots, fighting for our rights as indigenous people. So she knew if I got arrested, it wasn't because Simon is doing something stupid. He was out there getting the work done.
0: Yeah. As I follow you on Instagram, I know that you guys tease each other. I think there was one that I, I remember you saying something like, I'm a father. And then she got excited and then. If she's, she said she cussed you out or something.
1: Like that? Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always tease her because she wants grandbabies, and I'm like, I know they're coming. Maybe hang on, just give me a little bit. But I, I did. I put it out there that we are mothers, and we are cousins, and brothers, and fathers. And she's like, Sh. and I'm like, no, hang on, ma, hang on. I'm not saying I am just yet, but soon, soon. She's still, she's still waiting.
0: Her name is Bernadette, right?
1: Yep, Bernadette, Bernadette Moya.
0: Shout out to you, Bernadette Moya, for really spending time making sure that Simon knows who he is, bringing him to his indigenous side and having him experience the culture in terms of being a grass dancer, just finding his people, being there and being an advocate. That makes me curious about her upbringing, her papa and her mom. And I see that you post a lot about your grandpa. Mm -hmm. Tell, Tell us about your grandpa and what you feel comfortable about your grandma.
1: Oh, he's still around. He's he's only two hours from here. I'll go see him tomorrow. He's still kicking, man. And, and that's the thing. Doctors are, they ask him all the time, what's your key to life? What what keeps you going? And then he goes, well, it's just three things. Beans, beer, and green chili. And <laughs> that's it. That's all he needs. He needs his beans, his beer, and his green chili. And he's a happy camper. So he he's still around. My grandma, though, his wife, passed away in 1995. He still wears his wedding ring. He still calls Aww. for his his babe. And she She also, I think, is where I get my strength because she grew up in LA as well. And as indigenous Chicana, she was very, very dark skinned. And so a lot of people thought she was black. So she wasn't allowed to sit at a lot of counters. Whereas my grandpa is a little bit more fair skinned. They would walk into restaurants in Los Angeles in the 60s and they would say, you can stay. She has to go. But she was a strong lady. Nothing ever really fazed her that came through and she she taught that to my mom and my mom taught that to me. And we're very fun, loving, food loving, comforting people. But there's also that gangster side that comes out once in a while. And, but you know, it's only in a protective mechanism, right? Don't let anybody fuck with you and don't let anybody fuck with somebody you love and, you know, especially bullies. And that's how I see the mascot situation. That's how I see the oil and Gas, you know, all you know, this is a lot of bullies and a lot of people telling you what you should believe and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. They've been telling us that since 1492, and my grandma didn't suffer that. Neither did my grandpa. Neither does my mom, and now neither do I.
0: Your grandpa is what ninety?
1: Oh, he's almost ninety. He's eighty-seven.
0: He's eighty-seven, so he's been around for a while. You know, oh,
1: yeah, oh yeah.
0: He's seen a lot of things, experienced a lot of things, and it sounds like you spend as much time as you can with him. As you continue to spend time with him. What do you feel like he continues to teach you?
1: Patience. One of those, you know, and then also just like rejoice, just be happy. There's so much in life that we suffer from and it can manifest in anxiety and depression and substance abuse. But my grandfather teaches me to just enjoy the moment while you can enjoy the moment. Don't stress over something tomorrow that you can take care of today. He passes on a lot of that joy. It helps me, especially you know, since I have to go up against all of these racist fans and sports fans, just like today. And I even had a, a argument with a guy yesterday, last night, who was wearing Chief stuff. And I heard him talking about, oh, we're the next to be canceled. And he was sitting next to a guy who's from Virginia and a big fan of the Washington football team. And so they kept throwing the R word around. And so I just, you know, I finally said, fuck it. And as close closed the tab out, I walked over to the guy. And I said, hi, how's it going? I'm Simon Moyes. And he goes, oh, yeah." And so he probably thought I was a fan of the team. And I had to tell him that I was one of the leaders in the fight to change the Washington football team name. And now I'm also one of the leaders to get the Chiefs to change their name. I try to educate him a little bit, but my grandpa teaches me pick your battles. Some people are going to be assholes just for the sake of being assholes. They're going to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Some people just don't want to learn. So don't waste your breath on those people. I said something to this guy. He was at least a little, a little polite about it. I think that's one of the things my grandpa has always taught me. It's like, know when to pick your battles and know when to just say, fuck it, walk away. They're not worth your time.
0: Well, he's a sweetie. I like some of the videos and the the little post about him. I giggled when I saw that he now has a cell phone and can text.
1: Oh yeah, no, He can text and he makes everybody laugh. My sister's birthday was on January 27th and I don't know why the hell she wanted to go to Olive Garden. I was like, Jesus, out of all the good food in this city. <laughs> and anyway, so we go to Olive Garden and my grandpa enjoys his wine and he had more than a few. And as he's walking out, there's all these tables and he sees this waiter pouring wine. And my grandpa he's you know, in Spanish you say topedo, topedo means you're drunk. And he's all topedo. And he goes, Hey, and he goes, I gotta, I got I gotta tell you something, man. There's something wrong with your spaghetti. And he goes, Oh yeah, what's wrong? And he goes, It got me drunk. And, and he had the whole table, all those tables like this cute little old man that could barely stand because he's drunk off of wine. And then he kept telling people by the door. And that's the thing. He brings that joy. He brings that comedy. And it's necessary for especially the work that I do to find humor when I can. So after I write a really hard piece like I did today that just came out on The Nation about the Chiefs, I work diligently to watch something funny or to make light of life because with the work that I do, it can get heavy. It feels like a bag of bricks. And but my grandpa taught me how to set the bag of bricks down. You can you can put them down.
0: Yeah, my grandmother always did that well, too. When you talk about heavy things or experience that, that you need to end it with some form of laughter.
1: Yep. Something lighthearted. And then you can go. it's, It's like, I don't know who told me this. Jesus, I can't remember. It's like being a boxer. You know, you can't keep fighting without going to your corner. You need to go to the corner, you need to hydrate, get some lessons, relax, let your body recharge and then go back in. So every time I write a story, I remind myself I have to go back to my corner, sit there, hydrate, take some lessons and then go back in.
0: Thanks to grandpa for all those lessons. Yeah. I think it's beautiful that your family is tight and very supportive. I feel like family, at least my family, they keep me grounded. You know, mm-hmm. my my brothers will knock me down a couple levels. So it's good to have family that that way that, you know, keep you grounded, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I noticed as I was learning about you is not only were you a grass dancer and of course you're a writer, but I was blown away when I heard this. Oh, shit. Yeah, impressive. I'm like, he can sing? What the, what the yeah. heck? Simon's like a writer. He's a, this and this. Now he sings? He's in a band? Was in a band.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. I had to make a choice. I was playing Red Rocks Amphitheater in Denver in Morrison, Colorado. I had just been accepted to Columbia University School of Journalism, so I had to choose a path. I was either going to be a musician or I was going to be a writer. I chose to be a writer. Because I love music, I still do music on the side on occasion. It's part of who I am, but I found that with my words, with writing, I reached a broader audience. As an indigenous journalist and writer, here came NBC, CNN, NPR. The New York Times called me an activist, and I was like, just because you're Native and you push back against the narrative doesn't make you an activist. As a journalist, we deal in facts. And so why am I supposed to be in the opinion section when what I'm saying is a fact, proven fact, empirical proof? Yeah, I remember that. That was back in 2011. And then that song that you played, I wrote that while I was still at Standing Rock. I was at Standing Rock and I'd go back to Denver and then I'd go back to Standing Rock and I wrote that. And funny enough, I've never won an award for journalism or writing, but then I write a song and I win an award for it. Uh, it's weird. But yeah, I'm, I didn't
0: know you got an award for that. That I didn't find. So
1: yeah, I don't know why that one got an award so much. But yeah, I've been a, I've been a musician since I was 19.
0: You've always been the singer or did you play?
1: No, I, I mean, I, I would toy around with piano and guitar, but I realized that I could. So like, for example, the voice that I have right now that you're hearing is I have a very natural, deep voice and it comes out every once in a while, but I have it this octave now because of my vocal coach and she told me one day she goes if you want to keep singing for the rest of your life you're gonna have to bring your voice up and learn how to not be so baritone and so yeah my natural speaking voice is very deep Uh, even today even if i'm not singing uh, and i'm just having a conversation i don't go back to this i bring it back up here because of the yeah that's it's that that was my vocal coach she taught me how to make sure that I keep my my singing voice healthy, alive, and well, so I guess if I ever give up singing, it'll just be this all the time.
0: well, why don't you sing us something?
1: Oh yeah, no way, no, no I, <laughs> oh, no, God. no i i i I have to have a few drinks before I go and do that hairy right, okay, shit,
0: you know you said I had to make a choice of either the music path or the Path of writing. So we're glad that you went with a path of writing. I know that you do a lot of education. And I love that you said we have to be patient, meaning that we are patient as Indigenous people, constantly re educating, educating people. And your biggest platform, I remember you saying, is I'm not here to change the narrative. I'm here to correct it, right? Like I want to correct it. Let's just talk a little bit about that. I know that you do it all the time. And most of our listeners are Indigenous. The most curious question I have is, what do we as Indigenous people need to continue to improve ourselves in that way? Because I will, I'll speak for myself. I would say probably in college and beyond is when I really started to learn about what really happened. And I'm still learning because I do a lot of work in Indian country as well. And I find that sometimes our people don't also know the history. They have the stories which I think is beautiful. They know the stories from the grandmother and the great-grandmother, but they don't understand how that came to be.
1: Yeah. Like, for example, the Declaration of Independence refers to us as merciless Indian savages. I think what needs to happen when somebody's like, should that be deleted? And I'm, no, it should be highlighted and then put in an addendum, you know, so that they understand the history of that racism. I am 100% for tearing down statues. of Christopher Columbus of Robert E. Lee and anybody who's a, a racist, Brutal murder. And but we have to keep the lessons alive. Why were there statues? Why do they refer to us as the merciless Indian savages and in the Declaration of Independence? So that's why I said I'm I'm not here to change it. I'm here to correct it. I'm here to help people understand that photojournalists in the newsroom, I'll tell them, you know, years ago I was at the Denver Post or the Rocky Mountain News. I can't remember. I'm that old. But one of the photojournalists in their caption referred to. Indigenous people of the Denver March powwow in, as in costumes. And I had to go, wait a minute, that's not a costume. You wouldn't refer to a priest in a costume or the Pope in his mitre being a costume or, you know, the Jewish community wearing costumes. So why is it okay for us? And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. So it's a lot of correction, but there are certain narratives that you want to just highlight merciless Indian savages and tell them why they referred to us that way while they were acting as savages.
0: Yeah. One thing that I learned from you recently, not directly, but doing my, my little research here, I had no idea. I think a lot of people don't know about this. And you talk about the history and you said it all started with the Pope. And I was like, what? And then you talk about this scripture or this document. Oh. Tell us about that. Cause I was like, oh my God, I had no idea about that.
1: I, I was an undergrad when I learned about it. It's called the Caetera, and it's an edict from the Pope. And it is the basis of Indian law, right? And Indian law is literally what it's referred to. The, the inter said that go out and Christianize and take any land that isn't Christian. So when you study Indian law, which I did for a semester, I, luckily at Columbia Journalism, they let you go study at other schools. And I got to take Native American law at Columbia Law School. And so we talked about the inter and the basis of Indian law and land theft, a lot of people don't know that there's, I mean, it really branches out that way. And so any native lawyer, that's kind of like, you know, 101, where did this all start? And it started with a Pope's edict. And I believe it was the, I don't know, 1100s. It was a long time ago, but yeah, the Pope is the basis, that edict is the basis of Native American law and what is still litigated in courts to this day.
0: That just shows how much is missing in education, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So one thing I know you always talk about too is telling folks how they need to continue to educate themselves. And I love how you say, you know, whatever you know about us as indigenous people, throw it all out.
1: Yeah. And start yeah.
0: all over. There's that. And then also I feel like this is one message I always try to tell folks that are non indigenous mm-hmm. is that once you know It's your responsibility to also tell other people when they are misinformed or they say stereotypes. And what gets me a little flustered sometimes is if I'm amongst non-Native friends, right? And somebody says something, they'll look to me. They'll look to me and they want me to do the correction when they know very well that, that they could do it. And I actually had a conversation one time with a colleague because something had happened. And then at the end, I said, you know what? It's much more powerful when it comes from you as a white woman than from an indigenous woman, because when it's coming from me, it looks like I'm mad or upset or I'm salty. You know, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's those moments where you have to be the spokesperson for all of Indian country. And you have to remind them, like, I'm Oglala Lakota and Chicano. I'm not Oneida. I'm not Ojibwe. And you have to tell them that I can't speak on behalf of all the nations and tribes. But when it comes to something as basic as being respectful and showing that level of appreciation to indigenous people by not saying something, not using the R word or not making excuses for sports mascots or land theft. Then you speak up, but you know, I'm still learning. I don't know everything there is to know about indigenous communities because we're so diverse. The Dene have their stories. We have ours and we have different languages and different parables, but yeah, you, you end up being the spokesperson for every nation and tribe for every indigenous person when you're the native in the room. In my case, it typically happens because they know I'm a mouth and a journalist. And so they're like, oh, ask Simon. And we're like, okay. But I—that you're right. I do tell my students when I'm teaching, whether it's at the University of Colorado or I'm giving a lecture somewhere, I'll tell them everything you think you know about Indigenous people, drop it, erase it, and let's start all over. Because even if you do have a fact, it's really hard to winnow out all the bullshit. So what we'll do is we'll throw everything out and then you'll be able to reaffirm something i be like, see, that was accurate, but that was bullshit. It's important that people start all over again because we're talking about generations of misinformation, of lies, of propaganda. The idea that there was such thing as a spirit animal. There was no such fucking thing as a spirit animal. Not one nation or tribe has a spirit animal. That's a, That's total Americana. So yeah, you have to encourage these people to... Start all over again, whether they be elected officials or anybody. They're also carrying a lot of bullshit with them. Do you, as a matter of fact, do you know the difference between lies and bullshit? This is actually a lecture I give to my students. There's a difference. Tell me. Okay. People really do like to, ah, oh, it's it's such bullshit. No, those are two completely different things. To lie is when you have the facts, but you present something false. Bullshit is when you pretend to have the facts. And then you just say anything, right? So to lie is, is just like, where were you last night? And, you know, you weren't with your boys or whatever. Okay. And then you give her something. You know, that's a lie. Bullshit is kind of like, why is this guy blue? And, you like, oh, bird farts. You're pretending to know something. So those are two different things. So You have a lot of lies and bullshit you have to work through when it comes to the indigenous history and narratives.
0: And that can get gray. It can totally get fuzzy. Simon, you talk about this as well. And I'm wondering... What can we do as Indigenous people? You and I both know there are smart people out there, people who Mm -hmm. are doing a lot of good work, people who don't have a platform. However, what's beautiful about us as Indigenous people is like, we are so creative. We're so resourceful. We know how to do a lot with very little. The platforms we've been using now is like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're using YouTube channels. There are a lot of Indigenous podcasters now. Yet. You say this over and over. We don't have a platform like on NBC, CBS, CNN, and that's strategy in a way. They don't want us to have the mic in those places. Do you think that will ever come?
1: Yeah, I think it will. I think in time, just like the Washington football team changed its name. What is it? Omaha was the insurance company. They dropped their logo. I think it's, it's happening. It's happening slowly. It's just, though, when I was at NBC News, Working at 30 Rock, you find out that the reason that they don't have it is because it's all about dollars and cents. And that's what I teach my students at the university. I just say, look, before we move on, we need to know one thing about journalism is that it's still a business. It's a donut shop. Okay. And so you want to put your best selling donuts forward. Okay. If this donut doesn't sell well, you put it back over there or you just don't acknowledge it and you just keep putting the best donuts up front. And so when I teach my students, I mean, their minds blow when they think about journalism as as a business. There's this great documentary called Misrepresentation, M-I-S-S, and it talks about how white male media is from Hollywood to journalism. And a lot of people don't know, but this is true. The most male, most white industry in the U.S. is media, is journalism. And it's not oil and gas. It's not banking. And so you have to look at it from that lens. I was told when I was at NBC News is like, there was no money in it. So they didn't, that's why there's no NBC native. There's NBC Asian, there's NBC black, there's NBC out for the LGBTQ community. There's NBC Latino, but there's no NBC indigenous because they see our small population because we are the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land. And because of that, they don't see it as worth their investment. So even though it makes sense to have you know, as they say, quote, unquote, all the colors of the rainbow represented, we just don't justify them spending that money. And in time, yes, I I do see that changing. But right now, that's why there is no, you can't turn on NBC News or ABC or CBS or, you know, MTV Viacom. You can't, you won't see Indigenous people hosting a program. We're invited to talk about topics and that's it. And of course, with the evolution of time, things change. But right now, we're not worth their money. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And again, having been in the back and watching how the sausage is made, you learn that they don't even think of you. So it's not even malicious. That's why CNN back in 2020 had that graphic that referred to us as something else. We're just not even considered. Yeah, of course, if you talk to a couple of people, some of them may be fans of the Washington football team when it was the R words or the chiefs or the Braves or et cetera. But at the end of the day, they just, they can't grasp the idea of indigenous people as a community because a lot of them grew up with that idea that they're indigenous, they're a quarter Cherokee, they're a quarter Choctaw. So they will be the box checkers. So that's why when you come across these folks and they're in the newsroom, but they're not pitching indigenous stories, but they are box, Box checking. They're saying they're Native American.
0: Hmm. Frustrating.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. Yeah, and especially if your editor's a fan of like the Chiefs or something, and you know you're trying to get a story out, and yeah, the Americans, black, white, Latino, Asian, and some Indigenous folks have been conditioned to think a certain way, and we aren't in that that diversity list just yet, even though we make it in there sometimes. For the most part, you will see a diversity of black, white, Asian, Latino, and then other. That's still something that we have to deal with to this day.
0: I totally understand because of the work that I'm doing. As you said that, what came to my mind is, oh, that's why that this happens. What I'm saying there is these large intermediaries that are trying to do work in Indian country, They they want to have like a native program or service, and they'll get pockets of money from financial institutions. But then when that dries up, it goes away. Like, well, who's going to fund this, right?
1: So similar. People don't acknowledge wholesale Native American Heritage Month. You know, Black history all over the place. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing Black history from the, even the NHL, really super white, you know, hockey league. They're, they have Black History Month and, you know, Hulu and all of it. But when it's Native American Heritage Month, they're like, it's what? It's Native American Heritage Month. Oh, okay. But then that's it. You don't see anything on Netflix. Nothing on Hulu. You'll see some references here and there, but not wholesale. You won't hear NHL or the NBA or NFL. They don't, nobody talks about Native American Heritage Month. Again, that's just the erasure of indigenous people in the American narrative because you can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're guilty of a genocide. And everybody doesn't want to acknowledge that they're on stolen land. So that's why the United States can apologize to the black community for slavery but they can't apologize to indigenous people for slavery and land theft while they're not going to give it back. And that's yeah. what it is. And it would be an empty apology. That's why we don't, we don't get an apology. We barely get any recognition because they know their own stolen land.
0: It's as you say, all of that, it makes me think that's why we're doing it ourselves. What yeah. <laughs> one bit at a time, one bit at a time, we're doing it ourselves. And the, I feel like the more that we speak up, in whatever platform, wherever there's an opportunity for us to be there, it's like we almost have to literally insert ourselves there because like, hey, sure. this this is just as important. I'd always try to look at things from a strength-based, you know, optimistic view as well. Because I and there's definitely learnings in all of that. And I get really excited seeing our Indigenous people, just uh, like the amazing artists, people who are starting to really get into the film business and doing themselves businesses is right. booming, right? I just, I, it gets me excited. I feel like in this, the work that you do, the journalism, the writing, The I had said earlier in this podcast, like I struggle with the English language yeah. and writing is one area, which is a constant, like a constant practice. I know there are up and coming young, you know, the future, our young generations who want to be a journalist or maybe never thought about it. Yeah. What would you say to our young people about this world of journalism
1: well first off, I really bloomed later when it came to academia and writing. I knew I was always a storyteller my mom was a storyteller and but the reason I got into the language English language was because I was like, oh so this is how they lie oh, this, this is how they get they get away with it nice. and so I wanted to study their weapon and, and you know the, how they would use it as a spear so if I can beat them at their own game, I, I would be in a better position. So that's why I got fascinated with language, with English in, in particular, because there was that great movie, Amistad, from like in the early 90s with Anthony Hopkins about the the slave trade. And there was this scene where this white man said, well, what I meant to say, but it couldn't translate. You either it, You either say something and it means something or it doesn't. But because there's so much room for lying and deceit in the white language, I needed to study it. And so I still do. I, you know, I still study words every day, words I don't know, words I, I, I really, you know, I'll put them up on my wall and just so that I can see them. And then I, but I picture that as, as a way to fight back and to win at their game, you know, meet them on their plane if they want to throw those punches. It's just like boxing. You study your enemy. And you study their moves. And for white people and invasion and colonization, it was language. And that's how they got away with a lot of things. For this upcoming generation of young writers and storytellers and journalists, it is a practice of patience. You're not going to all of a sudden show up in the newsroom and be a columnist. You know, I had to write about weather. I had to write about <laughs> crime. I had to write about any, everything. Just like everybody else, you earn your stripes. But once you get there, you have that responsibility and accountability to your people. And so that's why I utilize what I do to help our people in one form or another, whether it's journalism or or just straight storytelling or writing. but it you have to be resilient and take the punches and get back up and go because you're gonna get you're gonna get hit a lot. you know you're gonna have black people as an editor telling you that they're not gonna run this story and maybe because he's a fan of the Blackhawks you're going to have a latino that says what you're doing is causing trouble and you're just a muckraker and you know that there's no issue i said and then i quoted my one of my elders in my piece today about us being one of the last races it's okay to be racist to and it's true when i was living in dc there was this one bar it was a sports bar and i'd go in there cuz i'd want to watch the colorado avalanche or the broncos or something and but if the broncos were playing the washington football team or if the you know if the the crowd was you know, there to watch it, the game, and here comes natives, we would get run out by the black community, by the black fans, the Latino fans, the gay fans, white fans, old fans, young fans, you really have to realize you may be the only native in that newsroom. And so you are representative of all the people, even though I'm not Dene, i I'm not Ojibwe, I know that as a native, I'm representing all indigenous people to these people. So it's it's a lot, but it takes a lot of patience.
0: I love, love, love that you said how every day still you're learning. Every day. Words. Yeah. Yeah. Because anything that we want to be decent at mm-hmm. takes practice, takes commitment, takes, you know, and I'm sure you find joy in especially a word that may, what would be a word that you recently discovered that you're like, oh, I like this word. It's a new word.
1: So lately I've been having really fun making up words. Years ago, and I'm revisiting, they're like old friends. Like I'll talk about how, you know, people's dipshittery, fuckery, which I included in the title of my book, because it really encapsulates a lot of those emotions, utilizing their language and turning it against them. Just like fuckery, dipshittery, assholery. It makes sense. They're like, that's just a bunch of assholery. You don't have to use so many words to say, like, well, they're being assholes. And no, it's just a lot of assholery. Yeah, that's their fuckery. Look at that dipshittery. Utilizing less words to get your point across. I still like the old language. I started with Edgar Allan Poe. He'll use words in Latin like rara, avis and that just means rare in the land. I still use those, you know, of, of your. They get edited out because that's old English. That's old Edgar Allan Poe and poetry. <laughs> but I still love that purple prose. That's what it's called. Purple prose is, is poetry. I try to use it as much as I can, but, you know, they get edited out. But again, like you said, it's like, keep learning, know your craft, just like a chef, know all the spices. And that's what I do with words. You know, I just grab that little spice, add it in there, grab that spice, add it in there.
0: Building on the learning, what do you feel like you keep relearning? In other words, what do you feel like universe is always trying to teach you? And Maybe you haven't cut on yet and it's like, ah, I made this mistake again. When it's in a different situation or with different people, mm. what do you feel like you keep relearning?
1: I need to relearn how to not just pick my battles because that's something, again, like my grandpa taught me, but also know when it's going over people's heads. Like some of the stuff they don't understand and some of them they don't want to learn. So I need to stop doing that. You know, then I, I did last night. I made sure with that white guy wearing the chief's outfit, I made sure to know when to stop. When is this now becoming more of a brutal beatdown, and dial it back? And so I think that's what I keep learning is how to dial it back when some people are like, all right, Simon, that's good. Let's go, let's go. And we're like, no, fuck this guy. And you know, that, so that, that is something I continually have to remind myself is when to stop, When's, when enough is enough. And so last night I reminded myself. So I, I did pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yay. <laughs> well, I know you, we, we all know you write. We now know you sing. And that, that was interesting, the path. I know you paint, you cook, you chop wood. You dance. So what else do you want to try? What have you not tried yet that, you know what? I want to explore that. I want to try that.
1: Well, the whole chopping wood thing, that was only because I got stuck in Minneapolis in Minnesota in March of 2020 when COVID really shut everything down. And so I ended up living on the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota in this little cabin with water protectors who were fighting line three and my girlfriend at the time. And I but it was so fucking cold. And I had never experienced cold like that before. What would warm you up is chopping wood. So I would get up every morning, make coffee, make tea, I'd make breakfast. And then I'd go out and just chop wood and chop wood and chop wood. And then one day I look in the mirror and I have this big old bushy beard. And I have long hair down to my (laughs) shoulder. Yeah, it just happened like that. And I'm like, Jesus, I look like a mountain man. All I needed was the fucking plaid. I'm always open to learning new things. That's why I always try to cook new meals. Different things that I've never cooked before or perfect things that I have already made in the past. I'm just open to new possibilities. Of course, there's things that interest me I love hockey. I used to play hockey when I was a kid, but it's kind of an expensive sport. So if I wanted to get back into it, and I live right across the way from an ice rink and in in this gym, but it's really expensive. So I like my hobbies cheap.
0: (laughs) Well, I know one of your hobbies... I don't know if it's a hobby. Maybe you probably could say it is. I know you love tacos. You always there's always something oh, yeah. about you and your tacos and when I saw that you said you went to Mexico for tacos, I'm like, "What? What what yeah. tells that story?"
1: Yeah, no, no, there's this great taco stand that allegedly as lore tells it invented the fish taco in the deep-fried beer batter style and I had to try it. And I did, and man, I haven't I I mean, I love tacos, but I haven't had that orgasm since with that taco there's, and also there's this one that comes out of Mexico and it's making its way across the U S little by little. And I encourage people to try it. It's called birria, but it's a lot, it takes a long time to make. And there's a consume, so it's more like a stew and then you dip your taco in there. Oh, it's amazing, but it's, it's pretty rare to find outside of LA. There's a couple places that sell it in Denver. I know it just got here to Santa Fe. So, and I think that's also, you know, me being Chicano and proud of being Chicano. And especially when the Trump era came around, all these racist bastards were saying awful things about Mexicans, but they would still eat our food. And that was the funniest fucking thing that some of those jackasses that stormed the Capitol after they did that, they went and had tacos later.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Right. And these are the people that are like shut down the border and going down there looking like, you know, they're in the military, even though they didn't join the military. Which always got me fucking that 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 gets me. You see these guys that walking around looking like John Wayne, and then they and then the other ones look like they're about to go storm somewhere in the Middle East, but they've never joined the military. You know what, dude? You're cosplaying. Go back to the basement, your mom will bring you Cheetos, and you can play your video games. But yeah, the hypocrisy of like they don't want us, they don't want Mexicans, they don't want our people being here, but they want our cuisine. And that's the same thing with indigenous. They have a problem with this, but they have no problem putting a fucking dream catcher in the rearview mirror of their Mercedes or putting up a painting of an indigenous person that's apparently supposedly from the 1800s. But then when you and I walk in the room and we have an issue with something about appropriation or racism, they just don't want to be a part of it.
0: Right, right. So Simon, I always like to ask our guests after we have a dialogue. I've really enjoyed this. I've gotten to know hmm. you more, and I did this because I wanted to also have folks see another part of you. I know that you're out there in public, but most of the time, when you Google you, you're telling folks, "That's incorrect. <laughs> That's wrong." What would be one word of advice or wisdom that you want to offer our indigenous relatives? And other folks listening, what is landing for you right now in your core about what folks should be sitting with?
1: Be nice. Really, I mean, you look out there and sometimes there's natives being really fucking awful to other natives, and I think that's because we know how to press each other's buttons. And where we already get it from the other fucking groups of people. We don't need to do that to ourselves. And you see some of these natives that are going around saying that they're more native than this person or they can say this because they're the feather carrier pipe carrier it's like so that doesn't that doesn't excuse you from being a decent person and i see that a lot i see that crabs in a bucket bullshit i'm more indian than you and i can say this because my grandpa and be like i don't give a shit who your grandpa was your grandpa could have been like the fucking saint of Native Americans. I don't give a shit. You should still be a nice person. Be supportive. Elevate, elevate each other, support each other. You know, that's what I mean. Even as a journalist, if I see another Native writer get the Pulitzer Prize, I'm like, fuck yeah. I wouldn't be like, oh, God, damn, why not me? Fuck that guy. And I've come across some of these Native men, especially in my field, that want, they do this silverback gorilla thing. And then you see some native so-called scholars create a list about who's Indian, who's not. It's just weird, man, to see like that level of evil hostility aimed at each other. Just be decent, be be nice, supportive, encourage people, encourage each other, be there for each other because there's not a lot of us. So we have to support one another regardless. You know, I mean, we all have our flaws. We're human at the end of the day. So we're going to be jealous we're going to be petty, We're to, but, the, but that's part of the human condition. But I think that when, when people start to tear down other natives, uh, it really breaks my heart. As a matter of fact, this was fucking funny. You remember Shailene Woodley, the actor, she came out to Standing Rock. I remember seeing her because I was so surprised how tall she was. And she was there one day and she started supporting indigenous people, this, that, and the other. And then a whole bunch of natives started tearing her down. And I can't remember what it was about, but then somebody made a comment on Facebook and they said, now Shailene Woodley is indigenous because other indigenous people are trying to tear her down. And it was almost like that was like, and that, that was funny, but it broke my heart to know that, that, that that's the bar. You are legit indigenous if other indigenous people are scrambling to tear you down. And I hate that part of Indian country. I despise that part of Indian country and, it, and it's there. And we know it's there a lot of people don't want to talk about it there's this guy called Lakota Man one on Twitter and he's blocked everybody and but all the white people are just like flooding his like oh support hey support but he blocks all indigenous people and we don't know who the fuck he is and so we're we have to deal with that all the time and he he's one of the people that we're fighting these posers or even if they're native they're supported by the white people but they're not supported by their community yeah all of that to say just Be fucking nice, man. Jesus.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with you. I do. It's sad. When I see that, though, when I see that happening, I see it as the individual, whomever they are, that's some healing work that they need to to work on. You know, a lot of healing still needs to happen in this world. I love that piece of advice. So thank you.
1: Uh
0: I have fire round questions.
1: Oh, shit. Okay.
0: (laughs) You're not afraid of them, though. All no, right, ready. I know the first one is what would you tell little Simon?
1: What would I tell little Simon? Oh, fuck. that's, that's, that. see, that's a loaded question. That's not fire around is asking me, which is the best sandwich or what's, what's my favorite taco? I mean, asking me what I would tell little Simon is holy. Well,
0: I what don't you define those rounds? In.
1: For me, I think what I would tell little Simon would be to laugh more really because even as a kid I was always so serious people still think I'm serious somebody said oh simon simon the angry indian simon i'm not angry i'm just maybe loud um yeah probably a laugh more and then also i did join the marines when i was 17 i think that played a role in who i became honestly okay now that i think about it i'd be like for me it would have been spend spend more time with family cuz a lot of them are gone and, you know, I can't ask those questions anymore. I wish I had spent more time with my grandma to hear about those stories about her growing up in L.A. and being indigenous Mexicana, but everybody thought she was black and all of the restaurants she couldn't, you know, go to and the discrimination she faced. And I even had my great grandma around. She died in 97. And I don't know. I think I would have encouraged little Simon to be a reporter back then and document it. Yeah,
0: I like that. All right. Define privilege.
1: Matt, are we gonna go there? <laughs> privilege. I mean, it can go one of two ways. There's something like white privilege where you get pulled over by a cop and you're not scared, and then there's something I have the privilege as an indigenous journalist with a platform to share information. So it can go a bad way and it can go a good way.
0: What is something that people get wrong about you?
1: That I'm mean. Yeah, that I'm I'm angry, and I'm not. I like. I- Fuck around all the time. I like telling jokes. I got the funny. I got the funniest family in the world, but I'd never. Yeah, people. one oh Oh, no, that was it at Standing Rock. Yeah. Oh, fuck. I forgot about this. There was this one person that I met later, and she was like, "I wanted to come say hi to you, but I was scared to." And I go, "Why?" She goes, "Cause you're you're always so intense." And I was like, "Oh, oh." I felt bad. And I was like, "Just come say hi. I'll get that at Indian Market." And people will come up and say hi and. It's cute. But yeah, I don't think I have that kind of resting dick face. But I, you know, I just want to make sh- make sure that people know that they can come say hi.
0: Yeah, come say hi. If I can say hi to Simon.
1: And you did. You came up to me. Yeah, yeah. as I was leaving. Yeah, you came up.
0: It's funny because I tell the story to other people. I'm like, yeah, I was like in this little bubble with Simon and we were like just talking. And then this little grandma comes and I want to like,
1: grandma, I'm still oh, talking yeah. to him. <laughs> <laughs> But at
0: the end, I was like, Simon, I want a selfie with you. So it was
1: cute. Yeah, they actually um, they stopped me at my car because everyone was leaving and they saw me leaving. But I was so hungry and I needed to get some food and I was carrying a hangover and I was ready to go and grab some food. And these cute little abuelitas were asking me questions and, you know, I answered them and I was like, oh, my God, I feel woozy. I had to cut it off. I was like, I need to go get some food. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, come say hi.
0: Yes, come say hi to him. Best concert you ever attended.
1: My own. Ah, uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater. Yeah, that was a bucket list. I got to play, and if you've never seen a show at Red Rocks in Colorado, it's an outdoor arena and it's up in the mountain. Yeah. That to, to be able to do a sound check on the stage where the Beatles played, you know, a perfect circle, all of the bands, you two and to be there. And so actually, as a matter of fact, under the under the stage, you can go, it's a tunnel and it takes you to the sound booth. But everybody who's everybody who's ever played at that stadium has written their name on the wall. So I wrote, I got to write my name on the wall that the Beatles signed and the, to be a part of history. So I, it would have to be that. Nice. Yeah.
0: How would we say cheers to a word nerd narrative jazz? Wait, what? I want to see if you remember this. You what? wrote this. What did I write? How do we say cheers to a word nerd narrative jazz?
1: How do we say cheers to a word nerd narrative jazz? Man, what was I on?
0: <laughs> you said hot damn.
1: <laughs> oh, hot damn. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. Yeah, I do that all the time. Even now, like tonight I'll probably go get myself a nice, nice steak and gin and tonic and it's really good and I hit I do this I hit the table and the hot damn and people go what's happening that reminds me my grandpa does his own he'll eat breakfast and he'll, we call him the breakfast slut because he'll go with to breakfast with anybody and so you have to get there first otherwise he'll just go to breakfast with anybody and I love it it's so cute he'll have a tortilla in one hand and he'll have his fork in the other and he's eating his food and it could be huevos rancheros it could be you know menudo and you'll go, God damn, I love being Mexican. And he just keeps getting his food. So I think that's part, I think that's where I got it. God damn. Aww.
0: All right, last one. What are you most grateful for now?
1: I guess still being here. I mean, I did. I it was when I was a kid, I joined a gang, and that's why my mom moved us from Los Angeles to the sticks of Colorado. Weirdly enough, everybody had guns. Exposed. These were cowboys, and I'm like, "What the fuck?" my At least over there, they—no one was showing them. Uh, yeah, still being here because a lot of my friends aren't. Whether it was gang or whether you know, health, the fact that I turned 40 in June and that I would have been on this earth—knock on wood—40 years. I got to be grateful for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh. Simon, I hear she kissed, which is thank you, my friend. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, just getting to know you. And also, hopefully that folks took away. I know they've taken away some things
1: and not not to be afraid of him. He's not scary. I promise. <laughs> I, when I co- I'm five seven. I'm not that fucking intimidating. You know, I don't, I don't come in. I weigh like 140, 150 pounds, you know, so I don't, don't be afraid. Just come say hi.
0: Just come say hi to him. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Simon. I look forward to our blossoming friendship. I hope we get to have cocktail or Java sometime in the future, before the end of the year, at least. Yeah, both. That would be nice. So thank you so much. Have a, a blessed day, beautiful day, and take care.
1: Okay. Thank you, dear. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye.